Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Kei te whakaronga mai koe ki tō tātou au horihori. Hei hōtaka e pana ki te pūtaio, te taio, me te kaupapa o te ora. You're with Our Changing World on RNZ National. I'm Alison Balance, and last week on the show, we heard from geologists about to set sail on the deep-sea research ship, the Joides Resolution. They are currently drilling into an active underwater volcano. Now, let's head on board again to find out what the ship was up to on its previous two-month-long expedition. Expedition leaders Laura Wallace from GNS Science and Damien Safer from Pennsylvania State University in the United States say that the ship spent its time drilling around New Zealand's largest earthquake fault, the Hikurangi subduction margin. Here, about 100 kilometres off the coast from Gisborne, the Pacific tectonic plate is being sucked under or subducted beneath the Australian plate. It's the source of some of New Zealand's biggest earthquakes, but some of them, you and I, won't even notice. To explain that little conundrum, here's Phil Barnes from Niwa in the sediment lab on the Joides Resolution. What we're trying to study here are referred to as slow-slip events on the subduction plate interface. So these are a kind of a fault-slip phenomena that's been discovered about 15 to 20 years ago based on GPS measurements of the landscape moving and it's really opened up a new field of seismology. So basically what's been recognised is that slow-slip events occur on subduction faults, but nobody really understands yet what the mechanisms behind that are, why they occur, what implications might they have for large magnitude damaging earthquakes or tsunami. And so there's a big international focus on slow-slip events to try to figure out you know, what's really behind those. And this expedition's been specifically focused on trying to target science around getting material that will help us to understand what's driving those processes. I think of slow slip events as like a slow motion earthquake, is that fair? A slow motion earthquake, yeah. It's fair basically the fault moves very slowly over a period of um, perhaps weeks to months in duration and it might release slip similar to a large magnitude earthquake but because it's released quite slowly it doesn't release all that seismic energy in terms of ground motion and seismic waves that pass through the earth to make the ground shake. So it's relieving the stress on the plate boundary fault by allowing it to move and creep along in little bursts of activity. So we focused on some deep water sites out near the um, what we call the deformation front which is where the plate boundary fault arrives at the sea floor. And by choosing some specific sites there we were able to collect um, geophysical information and sedimentary cores of some of the rocks that are actually going down into the immediate fault which we know has got slow slip on it. So it's a way of sampling the rock types that might be involved in slow slip events at depths that are achievable with the, with the Geordie's resolution. Where we were actually drilling is an area where following the Kaikoura earthquake in November of 2016 there was a large slow slip events triggered all along the east coast of the North Island on the Hikarangi subduction zone 
And those triggered slow slip events actually initiated and started in along through our drilling transect through the area that we we drilled so we're really um, that's brought up a whole other exciting set of issues that we'll be able to address with the with the cores and the data that we're getting out of this drilling expedition is exactly why that happened and how do these distant earthquakes like the Kaikota earthquake actually kick off a whole raft of motion several hundred kilometers away so this will provide new insights into that really interesting problem because that really large-scale triggering of slow slip events following Kakoda had not ever been observed before at that sort of scale anywhere in the world. So this makes this drilling expedition even more important than you know we originally had hoped. So what does it take for a ship like this to be able to drill cores like this when you're sitting over kilometres of water and you're trying to go a kilometre down through the, yeah. through the sediment? So it's really an impressive technical feat and engineering feat. So the ship actually has uh, nine thrusters. They're basically... Uh, propellers that are positioned around the perimeter of the vessel and then we have a, a, a what's called dynamic GPS and so it uses GPS positioning to hold by firing those thrusters off um, under computer control to hold position above the drill site to within a precision of in some cases as little as 10 or 20 meters the pipe itself is made of steel but it can bend a little bit and so that allows without much trouble to drill in the same position and hold the, the ship's position as you drill down and then the drilling itself is, is done by lowering the pipe to the seafloor and then pumping water through the pipe to lubricate the drill bit and then rotating it um, and allowing the, the weight of the pipe itself basically to press down into the sediments and drill ahead. So you can't really push down from above. You have to allow the weight of the pipe to, to bore itself into the sediments on, in a very controlled fashion. So how long does it take to, say, drill one average core? So... Uh, the, what we call the rate of penetration or the drilling rate is, is on the order of, depending on how stiff the, the rock formation is, uh, anywhere from about 10 to 30 or 40 meters per hour. So it's not particularly fast, but, but it's kind of uh, it's a 24-hour day, seven-day-a-week operation. So this means that you'll make uh, headway on, uh, in the neighborhood of 100 to 150 meters in a day. And did the weather cooperate with you during that? I mean, do you have to pick weather windows, or is it weather regardless? So that's another thing. So the way that the drilling um, is done is that there's something called a heave compensator, which is essentially like a giant shock absorber as part of the drilling derrick, and that allows for the ship to bob up and down somewhere around three to four meters, in some cases a little bit more, and still allow us to drill downward without uh, damaging the drill pipe or, or causing disruption. Um, if the swells or the heave on the, of the ship gets above that, then we have to suspend operations. How many cores did you end up drilling? Between the four different sites that we drilled, we drilled over two kilometers of borehole, so two kilometers into the earth. But in terms of the amount of core material that we extracted from that borehole, it was a little over a kilometer of of core material that we extracted from the four boreholes. So can you talk me through some of what we're looking at here, these cores, and tell me what you see in them? I mean, I see sediments and muds of, of different grittiness. Well, the cores in front of us on the bench here, they've got layers in them that we refer to as turbidites. So they're a turbidite deposit, and those deposits of mud and sand have been deposited from a current which is, which is called a turbidity current. So it's basically when you get an undersea avalanche of mud and sand cascade down the continental slope, and a, and a very turbulent density flow that entrains all of this mud and sand whooshes down over the seafloor, and all of the sand layers, of course, they're more dense than the finer grain clay and silt. So they fall to the seafloor first. And the result is that over a period of hours and days, a turbidite is deposited from what was a density flow that was carrying all of that sediment. 
and those were deposited um, basically as sort of uh, sudden events where an, an avalanche of sand and muds come down from higher up the continental slope. It's been maybe shaken by an earthquake or some other process has triggered it and we've had a what we call a mass failure of the sediment and it's, it's cascaded down the continental slope and settled down on the seafloor in the basin where we've been drilling. So, so is that the kind of thing that happened in the Kaikoura Trench after the Kaikoura earthquake? Absolutely, yeah. yeah. So that was a particular environment at the bottom of a canyon and on the margin where we're working um, we've done work on the continental slope and some sedimentary basins that are full of those same types of events as well as down on the basin floor at 3,500 metres water depths where material down there actually comes from both Gisborne sort of coastal area as well as from the far south down the margin from as far south as Kaikoura as well. They were probably deposited on an average recurrence of about say once every one to three hundred years. So say six metres of core in front of us. That represents a fair bit of time. How far down could you drill through the sediment? We drilled to a maximum depth on this expedition to just over a kilometre. So we drilled right through the, um, the upper sequence, which is made up of these kind of grey-coloured mud and sand layers with lighter-coloured units, which are volcanic ash. So that ash material has been blown by the wind following eruptions from the Taupo volcanic zone. And we entered then into an underlying sedimentary sequence that consisted of what we call pelagic sediments. They're much lighter-coloured. They're made up of calcareous microfossils. And they formed long ago when the... The subducting plate was far away from the North Island and it's been carried in towards the North Island by plate convergence and then dumped on by these muddy layers on the top of that. So the deeper part of the long core that we collected was a mixture of these um, white-coloured and and, uh, pale-coloured pelagic sediments and underlying that were fantastic colourful breccias and conglomerates and mixed-up rocks that are basically of volcanic origin. Now, the, the ash layers are very distinctive, aren't they? Yeah, they are. These are um, white-coloured ash horizons. Sometimes they're uh, slightly pink. So these are what are called rhyolitic um, ash deposits, and that's, the, that's because they've been produced from the big, the big super-eruptions through the Taupo to Rotorua um, region. So they're producing a lot of white pumice and white glassy material that's thrown up into the atmosphere very high during those big explosive events and carried by the westerly winds that we have that prevail and shift all that ash as a cloud that's floated offshore and arrived on the seafloor as these graded layers of, of white ash. Time to leave the sediment lab and head to another part of what is a very large ship. So collecting cores was one thing you did, but you did some other exciting things as well, Laura. Yeah, one of the biggest priorities for this expedition was the installation of some observatories, where basically where we put instrumentation beneath the seafloor up to half a kilometre to monitor changes in the Earth's crust during these slow-slip events. And in this case, because the slow-slip events that happen offshore Gisborne are so shallow, they're occurring you know, within, within a couple of kilometres of the seafloor, we essentially can get extremely, extremely close to where they're happening and make these measurements, which is really unprecedented. It essentially gives us a front row seat to, to look at what's happening during these slow slip events. So two observatories, these are things that you left in place? Yes, that's right. We installed two observatories. One of them is through an active, one of the main active faults accommodating plate motion at the Hikarangi subduction zone, and one of them was a little closer to land, about 40 kilometres offshore Gisborne, overlying the, the area of really large slow slip that happened. So these observatories will probably be in place 
place, you know, for up to a decade, maybe more. Um, depending and be collecting data continuously for a long time and really transform our understanding of what's happening during these slow slope events in the offshore region because up until now we've largely been restricted to using land-based GPS methods to see these and so we're much further away from them with the GPS and now we can get right on top of them and see many different types of changes during and between the slow slope events. So you say they're measuring continuously. Are they sending the data back continuously? Um, no, the data is being logged on data loggers at the wellhead, and we have to go back with a remotely operated vehicle, uh, basically an underwater robot, and it plugs in what what is almost like plugging in a USB stick into your computer and downloading the data that's being collected on the data loggers. So we'll do that periodically over time. And then there's another set of instrumentation, measuring temperature and collecting fluid samples that will actually, in about five years, go and pull that instrument string out and, and get the samples and um, download the, the temperature data. You've been involved in putting similar observatories in other places, haven't you? Yeah, so we've had uh, actually a, a very similar set of installations offshore Japan, almost identical in terms of the geological situation. So one in this area that's kind of above the fault zone um, in the, the rock mass a few kilometers above the main the main fault zone, and then one that's spanning a, a, a shallow fault zone. So it's very similar in terms of the configuration. And in, in, in that system, we actually were, were drilling and putting in the observatories for the purpose, initially, of observing large earthquakes to, to try to see with really uh, great detail and really high precision the buildup of strain and stress and then the release of that strain and stress in earthquakes. And we were surprised that um, those data sets were so precise and the instruments so sensitive that we were actually able to to see uh, an unexpected set of slow slip events in Japan that had never before been observed. And so the, the idea behind these observatories partly is that they're much more sensitive than a lot of other ways that you can sense or measure uh, the deformation or the contraction and expansion, so-called creaks and groans of the crust. We're hopeful that in New Zealand we'll be able to not just to monitor the slow slip events that we know are happening, but actually to see perhaps with even more detail and with higher sensitivity what's happening in the lead-up to those events and following those events. Some of the data being collected in the observatories um, is pressure data, including pressure at the seafloor, and, and we can actually detect passing tsunami waves from pressure changes being observed on that, on that pressure instrument. So if we were able to eventually link these observatories up to land, say via fiber optic cable, and get the data in in real time, these, these observatories could actually be used in tsunami warning systems. So that's another um, really potentially important application of, of the observatories that we've installed here. Thanks, Laura. That was Laura Wallace from GNS Science, and we also heard Phil Barnes from Niwa and Damien Safer from Pennsylvania State University. I'm Alison Balance, and this Our Changing World podcast first aired on RNZ National on the 18th of May 2018. Our webpage, rnz.co.nz/ourchangingworld, is full of audio and features and photos. We are available as a podcast on the RNZ app, as well as Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and Radio Public. If you've got a moment to rate and review us on your favourite podcast app, that would be fantastic. If you've already done it, then a huge thank you. That's much appreciated. 
Bruce Hopkins is almost at the end of his very long walk, but you can still check out his great podcast about walking Te Araroa Trail. It's called The Long Way Home. If you'd like to stay in touch with us, we are on Twitter and Facebook as RNZ Science. Thanks for your company. Kia ora mai.